So you can keep the law. But the point I'm bringing out here is the future apostle of grace is going to be so strong in grace because at one point before Christ, he was deeply grounded, rooted, and loved the law. He loved the law, committed to it. Later on, when Paul gets saved, you'll see there, uh, number two, he will face any argument in any synagogue against the gospel of grace. He probably formulated most of those arguments as a, as a legalistic Pharisee. And then, please put an asterisk next to number three. This is why Paul hated Jesus, hated the church, and persecuted it to the death. He could not get past this stumbling block in his mind. He can't be Messiah because to be killed on a tree is to be cursed of God. And Messiah is blessed of God. There's no way Jesus can be the Messiah. That was incredibly offensive to Paul as a Pharisee. It was incredibly a stumbling block. And he could not get past it. He could only get past it with a revelation from heaven when his D-Day came and Jesus Christ was revealed to him. Also, we see where Paul was very, very much exposed to the known world by living in Tarsus. Now, very important, number four, and then we're going to take a break. I'm going to go ten more minutes, we're going to take a break. Personal application for your divine purpose. Please turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, verse 12. Philippians 3 is an incredible chapter. It's very revealing of Paul's heart. He says, Not that I've already obtained it, or have already become perfect, but I press on in order that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. you got to read that really careful. It almost sounds like double talk. But... Troy, when were you, what, what year were you born again, would you say? Uh, 2005. 2005. All right. That's your D-Day. That's when Jesus apprehended Troy. I like to use the word arrested. Apprehended. He apprehended Troy for a that. Way beyond taking you to heaven. There is a personal that for each one of your lives. If I were to ask you right now, why did Jesus save you? The answer has to be more than, well, he saved me from hell and he's taking me to heaven. Well, my marriage was a disaster and I got saved as a result. Okay, that may be led to your salvation, but what is your future? What is... God leading you to fulfill? What is God calling you to? Why were you apprehended? It is your personal that. It's one of the reasons we do presbytery at the right time, where you bring in a prophetic group of people to prophesy over people, uh, to confirm aspects of their that. So this, from and see, the, the reason it's so important to understand that God was in your life from your mother's womb is that when you reflect on that and prayerfully consider that, it can help you discover 
you're that. Uh, so if you look at these five things that I have, how to discover you're that, please follow with me on this, and then I'm going to have you write out a verse. Number one, here's what I want you to do beginning tonight, and maybe even throughout the day tomorrow, and maybe just make it a journey. Prayerfully assess your pre-Christ life looking for God's sovereign hints. They're there. So let's just imagine for a minute we're Paul. All right, Paul, I want you now. You're 33 years old, Paul, and you're, uh, you're born again. Why did you get arrested? Hmm. Well, I grew up under the law. Hmm. I wonder if that could have ramifications in the future when it comes to grace. I grew up with Roman citizenship. Hmm. I grew up and then... You see what I'm, you see where I'm going here? So now, your name, your name could be very important. That's what I'm saying by prayerfully assess. Now I want to really qualify this. Because most of our pre-Christ life should not be assessed, it should be buried. Somebody say amen or oh my. It's forgetting what lies behind. So that's why I really use that phrase very carefully. Prayerfully assess your, your pre-Christ Born again, life. Where were you born? Who were you born to? What kind of family life were you raised up in? Do you think it's possible for a a woman to grow up into a sexually abused family only to be marvelously saved, healed, delivered, rescued? And later on, now as a believer, set people free? Alcoholic background? Drug background? Religious background? I was raised in the Lutheran church. I was president of the Luther League. I was a good Lutheran. (laughs) If the minister's out of town, he would have me take the service. Put on the robes. Do the liturgy. Preach. Now, when I look back on that and reflect on that, you can see call to leadership, call to ministry. I mean, it's, it's shadows. It's hints. It's sovereign hints. Charles, anybody know what Charles means in terms of a name? Man of God. Anybody know what Porta means in Italian? Porta. Lord help us. Door. Porta. You know, I can honestly say right now, if you can hear my heart, I have no greater joy in, in 40 years of ministry than to see me open up a door for God's people to come into greater intimacy with Christ. It's why I started out ministry leading worship. Because that's what you do when you lead worship, is you're bringing people into Samuel Shoemaker had a very famous poem he wrote in the 50s. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord than to go all the way in. I go so far in, I lose sight of the lost. And I get too far out, and I lose fellowship with my Lord. I'll just be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord. Uh, So I want you to prayerfully assess your pre-born-again life. And look for God's hints. Now, number two. If you're serious about... Let let me just take a pulse here. Hello. Are you serious about finishing your course? 
See, the word there, course, is a well-defined path that's been carefully laid out, carefully planned out. Are you serious about finishing what God has started in your life? Please say yes. What's this all about? All right. Then we have to be basically grounded in foundational truths. That's one of the things we're going to do here with the gospel of grace tomorrow. Foundational truths. Know your Bible. Get in the Word. Understand grace. Understand the gospel in its heart. Understand foundational truths. It's like going to college. Freshman year. I still remember it. Wasn't that long ago. <laughs> it was a long time ago. Everybody took speech 101. Everybody took history 101. Everybody's got to get grounded in 101 Christianity. That's why it's good to do this foundational stuff, Mike. Keep working the foundation. Keep working the foundation. All right. Now, once the foundation number three, there's going to be desires that will begin to emerge out of your heart that line up with God's purpose for your life. Always. Desires. The future teacher gets an incredible desire to study the Word of God. The future pastor or elder almost aches with a desire to see people shepherded, counseled. The future evangelist. Ray Jennings is in heaven right now. He led millions to Christ. He's from our movement. You start praying for the lost and in less than 20 seconds, he is convulsing like a baby with tears breaking out of his heart. That's his desire. See lost people saved. Prophetic. Apostolic. What is an apostolic heart? One of the foundational desires of an apostolic heart is to see everybody in their right place functioning, operating as the body of Christ. A lot of wisdom. Prophetic. God have mercy. What in the world is a prophetic desire? You know, it, prophetic, there, there, there's, there's a passion for presence. There's a passion for worship. There's a jealousy for God's character and for God's name. There's an absolute jealousy for the word of the Lord to come forth as a living now word from heaven that feeds God's people with life and grace. Future Sunday school teacher, you'll weep every time you see those kids and the tremendous joy of training them in the truths of the Bible. Missionary, you get a country on your heart and you, you can't help but weep because that desire is there. Listen to your desires. You know what the Bible says? The Lord grants you the desires of your heart. This is really cool. You're seeking God. You're pressing into God. You're loving God. He downloads desires and they begin to go and get released in terms of prayer and intercession. Desires. You get a future administrator I'm telling you, they'll see anything and everything that needs to be put in order. Get that thing put in order, put in place. They're just picky, picky. Administrator, drive me crazy. Whatever, you got accelerators and brakes. Okay? But you got to have both to drive the car, don't you? All right, then, number four, recognize the gifts and talents you have received from the Lord. How many of you have received gifts and talents from the Lord? Every one of you has no 
It doesn't matter if you're one talent, two talent, five. That's, that's not the issue. Now, I said earlier, God really loves the hidden life. You remember that? Do you know what God does not like? The buried life. And one of our challenges is to make sure we're not masquerading a buried life, hiding behind the veil of a hidden life. God loves the hidden life, but he doesn't want gifts and talents buried. I find Jesus quite stern with a guy who buried his talent because he didn't really know God and he had fear operating in his life. Every one of you have gifts and talents. I have been called to preach. I love to preach. I love to get under the anointing and flow. It's almost like you're prophesying the whole time. It's a gift. I'm, I'm not trying to boast here. Now, please hear my heart. It, it's a gift. Some people are afraid to get in front of people and speak. That's not your gift. Relax. You know, two greatest fears in America, taxes and public speaking. <laughs> but what I'm telling you is that God gifts you and gives you talents that help you fulfill your purpose. So whatever your desire and purpose is, you do have gifts and you do have talents. I don't care how buried they may look right now. They're there. They're there. God has given, Paul says very clearly in Romans, to everyone a measure of faith and a measure of grace gift. Everyone, without exception. That's why when we follow Paul's pattern of church, which I'll explain, I don't know if we'll get to it tomorrow. We'll have to wait for, it'll have to be the second time next year. Uh, the idea of a few doing most of the work Paul would be shocked. What are you doing? It's not like a football game, you know. You got 80,000 people in desperate need of exercise, watching 22 people in desperate need of rest. The whole thing's crazy. It's so out of balance. That's not the body of Christ. Each one of your members in your body is incredibly important. If you wake up tomorrow and your lungs say, I'm out of here, I'm taking the day off, guess what? Your room temperature in about two minutes. <laughs> How many people you got in this church? 175? 175 on fire, functioning, excited members of a local church where number 175 owns the vision of this church as much as Mike Nelson does. And the whole thing is a body functioning. Now, I can't tell you how rare this is. Church, please hear me. You have no idea. All of us have been raised for decades in a religious, cultural atmosphere and system that is unbiblical. I don't care how accurate the message is. The method is crazy. Paul's overarching greatest burden. Please write this down. This isn't part of my, this is spontaneous. <laughs> Colossians 1, 27, 28. 
Colossians, this really does fit in, though, with that. It really does. Colossians 1, if you were to say, Paul, what's one of the most important things that motivates you and gets your heart flowing? Here's what he would say. To whom God will to make known the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, verse 28, and we proclaim him, admonishing every man, teaching every man, notice every, every, with all wisdom, that we may present every man complete in Christ. The idea of only a few Christians exercising their... See, there's, there's no way you will be complete in Christ and come to full maturity if you do not operate in your personal that and exercise your gifts and talents. It can't happen. You can watch somebody else do it. You can watch Mike Nelson preach regularly on a Sunday morning and exercise his gifts and talents, and he's going to come into a maturity and a completion. But if I'm going to sit there week in and week out and observe and be a pew sitter and look at the back of somebody's head and my gifts and talents remain buried, it is impossible for you to mature and grow up into all that God has for you. You don't really come into it and grow into it unless you're actually doing it. And so we create an atmosphere and we create a loving foundation as a church where everybody is required to function. No exception. Now, I know it sounds idealistic, but that's what we're shooting for. That's what we're shooting for. And I'm telling you, please hear me, I'm not upset at all. I'm giving you, I've been in this thing for 40 years. Church, we have no idea how much culturally and how much of a leaven religion has been woven into the very fabric of our spiritual life. It's how we were raised. It's how we were taught. It's very, very difficult to unlearn that some, but it's ultimately called by Jesus a new wineskin. And he will not pour new wine into an old wineskin. It absolutely requires a new wineskin in order to get the full download of the new wine. So victory. I'm, I'm sure I'll see it Sunday. There's health in the house. There's life in the house. There's good things happening in the house. But I'm telling you right now, in the name of Jesus, you won't get the full download of new wine unless we're also willing to embrace new wineskin. And whatever that means. Please hear me. Whatever that means. Sometimes it gets radical, a bit revolutionary. So what? People will be excited People will get fired up. So recognize, how many just agree, you have gifts and you have talents. Absolutely. Then respond to the leading of the Spirit and the burning bush encounters. Wow. That's what God has for you. He has burning bush encounters at key points in your life to launch you into your purpose. Do you know what Moses thought at 79? Well, I blew that one. (laughs) Tried. Gave it a go, 40 years old, blew it. He's now 79. He's got a wife and two kids and about a few sheep hanging out in the wilderness. Life is over. No, no, no. Son, let's go save a nation. Let's go save thousands. Let's go rescue a people. Let's fulfill it. Moses, burning bush encounter. This seminar might be a certain kind of, I don't know, encounter, Lord willing. I want you to write this scripture down, Romans 4, verse 18, then we're done with this session. Romans 4, verse 18. Romans 4, verse 18. I want you to turn to that scripture, and I want you to write these verses. I'll I'll explain to you how I want you to write it out. Romans 4, verse 18. Very, very important concerning your personal that. 
Romans 4, verse 18. Paul's talking about Abraham. Abraham. And I want you to write these words out as I, as I say them. Just write them out. You see, it's on the middle of your notes. There's a lot of space there. I want you to write this verse out. Uh, here's what I want you to start writing. In hope against hope, he believed. Just write that out. In hope against hope, he believed. Comma. As we continue. In order that he might become. In hope against hope, he believed. In order that he might become. Then I want you to leave quite a space. Maybe two inches. And then I want you to continue. According to that which had been spoken. So you're pretty much writing out that verse, but you're leaving a space. Okay? Now, let's read the verse as it is. In hope against hope, he believed in order that he might become. All right, Abraham's become is a father of many nations. Now, the reason I had you leave that out is that's a job description that's already been fulfilled. So I can pretty safely say to Mike Nelson, I don't know what God's calling you to become, but I'm pretty sure it's not going to be a father of many nations. Somebody just say, thank you, Brother Abraham. (laughs) You fulfilled that call. It was a hundred-year walk, and the rest is history. But you should be able to write in that blank space, your become. What is your become. Now, how do you know what your become is? I already gave you five practical hints, but notice what the verse says. In hope against hope, he believed in order that he might become, then what does it say? According to what has been spoken. In other words, you can't just pick your become. Your become doesn't start with you, it starts with God. It starts with God calling you, speaking to you, arresting you. What is your become? Hey, I'm not trying to put a heavy trip on you. I'm just telling you, you have a become. Absolutely. You have a become. Now, there's warfare involved in hope against hope. Wow, did I have a lot of guys years ago hoping against Chuck Porta. I could give you some real horror stories. See, what happens when God speaks to you, it puts in your heart hope. It births hope. I have a hope. One of the words that God spoke to me was to be part of a major outpouring revival. Hasn't happened yet. I still carry that. It's a hope. In hope against hope. You know what that means? Somebody's hoping against you. Starting, first of all, with Satan. He believed. In order to become. Troy, you have a become. I keep picking on Troy here. God's after you, brother. Well, that's good. You've had a rough week. That's good. So have I. 
Bless God. Amen. Sometimes it's good weeks, sometimes it's rough weeks. Let's turn in our Bibles to Acts chapter 6. Where we left Paul, he's a little over 30 years of age. He comes back to Jerusalem. The church has already started. He's part of a hostile religious crowd. And we come in on your notes. We're on page 5. I must confess, this is one of my heroes. Uh, In the history of the church, there are vessels that God painstakingly fashions and molds sometimes for decades before he releases them. Then there are other vessels that all of a sudden explode on the scene. They're like a shock treatment, and they usually die, and it's over. John the Baptist would be an example. Six months ministry, and that's it. Stephen is similar. Now, let's look in our Bibles. If you see there on the top of page 5, I have kind of an introductory paragraph there concerning Stephen and the impact he's going to have on the life of Paul. The contrast is incredibly striking. Paul is totally consumed with religion. He loves the law. He loves the temple. And he loves sacrifice. Stephen's a new convert to Christ, follower of Jesus Christ, full of joy, full of freedom, full of life. If you see there, there's three streams of thought in Jerusalem at the time of Stephen and Paul. First of all, you have the Jews of the Pharisaical party. This would be guys like Gamaliel and guys like Paul. They are devoted to the law. They hate Christianity. Paul hated the name of Jesus. For him, it was blasphemous. Hated Christians. And they're trying to stamp this thing out. Then you have, look at number two. You have, Jew, uh, you have the Hebrew Christian church. Now, they're led by apostles. But here's the deal. They didn't fully understand what the implications of Calvary and what Jesus accomplished in fullness. They just saw themselves as a kind of appendage to Judaism, kind of an extension to Judaism. What in fact is going on here is a whole new ballgame. Later on, it's called this, a new creation. In other words, the old creation headed up by the first Adam totally blew it, and on the cross that day, God put away the whole deal and released the second Adam, who's heading up a new creation called the body of Christ, of which there's neither Jew or Greek. Then you have number three, there's Hellenistic Jews who are saved, and they're represented by a guy like Stephen. Stephen, however, is going to go into a prophetic revelation And he's going to understand more clearly than even the Jerusalem church the ramifications of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. You'll hear this a lot tomorrow, but Paul would always want his converts to see that day. I want you to really see what happened that day. What he's talking about is Calvary. If you can really see what happened that day, that's your foundational beginning to everything else in terms of following the Lord. 
So we see in the middle of page 5, Paul returns to Jerusalem from Tarsus. He's, he's joining the fight, and he's fighting against the new way. Now, what I want you to write in your margin to the right there, just write Luke 15, and I want you to write elder brother. In fact, I think a few years ago, I preached the prodigal son here once on a Sunday morning. Um, the elder brother is a Pharisee pictured by Paul. They don't understand the new thing that God's doing. They don't understand forgiveness. They don't understand joy. And that pharisaical, elder brother, religious, traditional spirit is rising up. That's what Paul is doing. He's leading the fight. He's a member of the Sanhedrin. That was a group of 71. He would have debated a lot with Stephen. Now, in Acts 6, 1 to 8, we start picking up now. And I want you to turn there. This is Stephen's testimony. This is a mighty man of God. Now... Uh, before I read Acts 6.1, let's just understand what's going on here. Stephen probably got saved in Acts 2. Okay? He probably got saved on the day of Pentecost. He wasn't from Jerusalem. He was a Hellenistic Jew, so he stayed there, and he became part of that first church. Now, just think about this for a minute. As a young convert, he's around in Acts 3 when that guy gets healed in the gate beautiful under the ministry of Peter and John. All right, he's in the prayer meeting in Acts 4 when Peter comes back and gives testimony of having suffered for Christ, being manhandled a bit for Jesus. Same with Acts 5. And so Stephen is there, and he's growing up in this first church. And what I want you to kind of understand with me, this is a first fruits. First fruits. This would be like Stephen is next generation. Peter and John, the older guys... This is next generation. Bob's your dad, right? Ryan, you're next generation. And what I want us to really get impressed with here is this is the quality of heart and life as typified by Stephen in next generation. Somebody say good fruit. Good fruit. Pure fruit. Sold out fruit. (laughs) Committed fruit. Now what happens in Acts 6 is problems in the church. Say thank you, Lord, that gives us hope. <laughs> the the first church has got problems. The, it has to do with getting bread distributed, and so you have a need, and the problem uh, and the need are met by this ministry we know as deacons. And the apostle said, "Choose seven men of good reputation." And the first one mentioned is this young guy, Stephen. Stephen. And so uh, let's just. That's like Acts 6. Let's pick it up at verse um, 3. But select from among you, brethren, seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, who we may put in charge of this task. And the statement found approval, verse 5, and they chose Stephen, a man full. I want you to make note of the word full. Whatever Stephen has, he has a lot of it. He's full of faith. He's full of the Spirit. So can you be. He's full of power. He's full of anointing. He's full of authority. And he's got a good reputation. He's got a lifestyle that is commendable. And so these guys begin to minister. Now look at verse 8. His anointing keeps growing. And he's full of grace and power. And he's performing great wonders and signs among the people. Now, in uh, the latter part of verse 9, it heats up. And this, uh, this synagogue of freedmen rise up. Paul very likely could have been in this meeting. And they begin to argue with 
Stephen. They try to get him out of the spirit, into an argument. They're unable to cope with his wisdom. Then, verse 11, they secretly induce men to lie about him. And then finally they drag him away, verse 12, and he's brought before the council. That would be the Sanhedrin. For sure Paul's in this meeting. And they put forward false witnesses, and this man incessantly speaks against this holy place and the law. And I love this, verse 15, and they looked at this young man, and they saw his face like the face of an angel. Very simply, what that means is the anointing of God was all over him. He was in perfect rest, perfect peace, and I'm totally convinced he knew that day he's going to die. But he had already died long ago with a total, absolute surrender to Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to look at your notes in, in uh, Roman uh, numeral 4, point B. And I have an asterisk by that because this is, this is important now. Stephen is going from a deacon to a prophet. He begins to see the Old Testament in the revelation or light of Christ. What Stephen began to realize was, wow, the Old Covenant has been superseded and replaced by the New Covenant. Now, this infuriates Paul. So here's what Stephen's conclusion would be. Letter C. The new has come. The old can go. Here's what Paul would say. The old is here. The new must die. They're on a collision course. I could take you through church history. This pattern has been repeated regularly. The new has come. The old is replaced. You can see it in David and Saul. You can see it throughout. Stephen also, D, saw prophetically the implications of Jesus' death on the cross. Now, I want to say something, and I want you to hear me and listen to me carefully now. He saw the new creation. Paul later on will expand on this in portions of Scripture like 2 Corinthians 5. After Paul gets saved, he's going to understand Stephen like from the inside rather than reacting to him from the outside, okay? And it's a new creation. I want you to think of this term, new species. There's a new species that has just been birthed. This is what Calvary is all about. It's a new creation. Uh, When I was eight years old, we went to Chicago on vacation and we went to the Lincoln Zoo very famous zoo in America. We went to the big cat exhibit. I remember seeing a magnificent male lion lying on concrete, surrounded by bars, in a cage. On the back wall was a mural of the African grasslands. It was like a picture of lions taking out wildebeest or zebra In one corner was a food dish. In another corner was excrement, not cleaned up. And I was drawn to that lion's face. I never saw anything more sad. He was totally bored, depressed, and for all intent and purposes, non-functioning. 
He wasn't living. He was breathing and eating, but he wasn't being a lion. Are you tracking with me? Now, there's two scenarios. Either he once was free, and he was captured. So now he lives with a painful memory of what once was. But there's another scenario worse. Can you guess what it would be? He was born in the zoo. And he thinks it's normal. Welcome to religion. Cultural, societal, traditions of man. Shadows, no substance. Form, no life. And there are churches filled even with born-again Christians living in a cage. In order for a species to fully be what it's born to be, it has to be in its proper habitat. Are you tracking with me? In order for a Christian, you are a new creation. You were born from above. You're a citizen of above. You're a child of the kingdom. You have the very air of heaven within you called the breath of the Holy Spirit. You have the very nature of Jesus Christ. You have the very faith of Jesus Christ. You have the grace of Jesus Christ. Otherwise, you're not even saved. You have all that, but that's the message. That's life. But we're still wrestling with a cage. And there's where Paul had a pattern. And he knew how to set up habitat for the species to flourish. It's why a 12-week-old Christian in Thessalonica didn't just survive, he thrived. Don't you want to go for habitat? Stephen saw it. He saw the implication of that day. Paul's going to kill it. Religion always kills life. Religion always wars against life. That's why in the Gospels, Jesus' greatest antagonist is the Pharisees. The very ones that are thinking they're working for God, defending God, upholding God, and they're actually warring against the very thing that Jesus is all about. And so Stephen, he just saw it. Now he's brought before the council, and you come to Acts chapter 7. It's the story of one message, one day, in the life of one young 28-year-old possibly believer, knowing he's about to die, and it's prophetic, the whole thing. The high priest said, are these things so? He said, hear me, brethren, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham. Immediately, Paul's hair on his neck bristled. Why? Because when Stephen's starting to talk about what God is doing, he doesn't go to Moses. He bypasses Moses, and he goes to Abraham. Later on, when Paul is saved, establishing what we know as the doctrine of justification by faith, who does Paul use as an example of the father of our faith and where salvation history actually started? He does it in Romans 4 and Galatians 3. Paul goes back to Abraham. That's our father. I do a whole series on Abraham, not as extensive as Paul, but you've got to love Abraham. He was made righteous before God by grace and faith. God always intended to save by grace and faith. God never intended to save by law. 
There's a reason why the law was given, but it wasn't to save you. He starts with Abraham. Then Stephen prophetically gives a very key. Verse 3. I could spend the next hour just on verse 3. It is that important. Here's how you become everything that God wants you to become. Abraham is our example. He departed from in order to enter into. Please look at that double-edged sword. It's two sides to the same coin. God called him out of in order for him to enter in to. You can't enter in unless you're willing to come out. And Abraham had seven come outs. We're not going to go into it, obviously. But that is an ongoing invitation for each and every one of you. You're called out. In fact, ecclesia, the word Greek word for church, means called out once. Well, when do I stop coming out, brother? Never. It is an ongoing journey. Hallelujah. Abraham was called out from his country. He was called out from his father. He was called out from Lot. He was called out from success. And his last called out was from Isaac. And then he departed into, hallelujah. That's where it gets really cool. And that's where it really gets exciting. So depart. I want you to write this scripture down next to Acts 7 verse 3. You can look at it later. Psalm 116 verse 15. Psalm 116 verse 15. And I also want you to write this down. Ephesians 1 verse 3. They all go together. Here's what Psalm 116, verse 15 says. Precious in the sight of God is the death of his saints. Oh, what in the world does that mean? And then Ephesians 1, verse 3 says, For he has blessed us with all spiritual blessings. All right, the word has blessed, write this down in your notes, please, is eulogasis. I'm telling you, you want to get a hold of this because this will bring you to whole new dimensions of your walk with Jesus. Eulogasis. E-U-L-O-G-A-S-I-S. E-U-L-O-G-A-S-I-S. Eulogasis. It's a Greek word. Thank you very much, brother, for the Greek lesson. It's where we get the English word eulogy. In the natural, when a person dies... We eulogize him. But what we do is we look to the past and eulogize what hopefully is a good life. When God blesses you, when God eulogizes or eulogizes you, he doesn't look to your past. He's prophetically speaking your future. So the reason is precious to God when you die and you allow the cross to separate something out of your life that is keeping you from moving on. Once you have a fresh work of the cross or a fresh death take place in your life, it's precious to God because now He is able to come to you with a fresh eulogy. You will always be launched with a prophetic eulogy into a further blessing with God in your life. That's why the cross is so important. And that's why the cross is a doorway. That's why the cross and death is precious to God. See, we do everything to avoid death. We have a strong surviving instinct. Your soul really has a strong surviving instinct. In fact, Jesus says it this way. If you try to save that soul, you're actually going to lose it. But if you let me kill that soul, then I can eulogize over you and release you in spirit to a whole new chapter in your life. 
I can't belabor the point, but you understand the, the importance of, of what's going on here. So then he starts talking about Abraham, and then what, what, what Stephen is doing is he's, he's given a kind of a summary of the history of God's people, and he's going he's gonna to address these guys that are listening to him. He's tying them in with forefathers who rejected God's purpose. He uses, number one, Joseph. His brothers were jealous. His brothers were going to try to kill him. Then they put him into Egypt. And later on, Joseph brings them into provision. Then Stephen goes into Moses. This gets even more severe. Moses was God's deliverer who they rejected. And, and uh, he then, as we're moving on here for time's sake, let's, let's go down to... Uh, um, let me find it here in my notes. He's talking about Moses, and you can, you can read that later. Even though they reject Moses, and who made you a ruler over us or a judge over us? And then he says, Moses also gave a prophecy. Look at verse 37. This is the Moses who said to the sons of Israel, God shall raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. That would, of course, be Jesus. And, 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 but our fathers, verse 39, were unwilling to be obedient to him and repudiated him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. Then he, he describes this golden calf disaster where the idol is made with the work of their hands. And I want you to make a note there in verse 41. Uh, and I want you to put in your margin there, where would it fit in our notes here? Uh, in your notes, it would fit in, you see there, Acts 7, 48, uh, actually it'd be a little bit before, well, it doesn't matter. Uh, somewhere there in the margin, like Acts seven forty-eight, you'll see this phrase that Stephen begins to use, the work of your hands. And I'm going to explain that in a minute. The work of your hands. The work of your hands. When you think of the golden calf, that was a work of their hands. It was false religion. It was taking worship away from God and going into idolatry. And in Exodus 32, the people paid a horrific price because they worshiped the work of their hands. Hear me now. You've got to understand the prophetic implications for your spiritual house that needs to be built. Here's the good news of Paul's gospel. You can't build it. Don't even try. Come into rest, humility, faith, and God will build your house. Remember when David said to the prophet, I want to build a house for God. And the prophet said to David, go for it. Later on, awakened by God, what in the world are you doing? Get your butt back there and tell David, I really got good news for him. David, you don't have to build me a house. I'm going to build a house for you. All right, Stephen continues on. Now what's happening is uh, the anointing is getting stronger. The anger is getting hotter in the room. Paul's beginning to turn red under the collar because he knows exactly what Stephen is doing here. He's lumping Paul with those who reject Joseph, with those who reject Moses. He's also beginning to lump Paul with those who tried to build something with the work of their own hands. That's what it means, uh, you know, the law. And that that's what that temple is all speaking of and the sacrifices are speaking of. And so Stephen almost continues with this relentless prophetic charge. And let's go all the way down to verse 46. And David found favor in God's sight, 
and asked that he might find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob, but it was Solomon who built a house for him. However, now when Stephen says this in verse 48, this is going to trigger a murderous outburst. This is what's going to ultimately get him killed. However, God does not dwell in houses made by human hands. He's not interested. That means you can't build a church. That means your spiritual house, Brian, is a spiritual house. Each one of you are a temple, a dwelling place of God, the Holy Spirit. You don't build your house. The grace of God builds your house. You don't have to go religious. You don't have to try harder and follow rules and regulations. And so Stephen says God does not dwell. Now what he means is the temple over there, God's not in that temple any longer. That old covenant has been superseded. He's not in those sacrifices anymore because these sacrifices taken place. He's not in that temple. And in fact, that temple, the real temple, has been raised up just like Jesus said in three days. And isn't it powerful the day of Calvary, the veil was rent from where to where, from top to bottom. God split the whole thing wide open, opening up the way for the new creation. And Stephen gives the altar call of altar calls. Now Paul's in this is in this meeting. You men who are stiff-necked, uncircumcised in heart and ears, always resisting the Holy Spirit. Do we understand what it means to tell Paul uncircumcised? When he loved circumcision, he loved the law. It was his whole way of life. Stephen is lancing his entire identity, his religious way of life, his old covenant, his law, the sacrifices, and even Moses. And he lances the whole thing with the sword of the Spirit. And he says, you are resisting, resisting, resisting the Holy Spirit. Now, Tomorrow we won't get to it, we'll do it in part two. But there are seven sins against the Spirit of God, and one of them is this sin right here, resisting the Holy Spirit. And the context of resisting the Holy Spirit is, God doesn't dwell in the temples made with human effort, human good works, and human good intentions. God lives in the temple built by grace, built by faith built by his love and mercy, built by his life. And so that takes, ultimately, if you understand this, the sweat out of Christianity. That's why the Lord says, come unto me, all you who labor and try so hard and enter into my yoke of rest. And I will give you rest. And I will build your house. And it's Galatians 2.20. Well, Stephen, he releases this word And he says, you guys didn't even keep the law, verse 53. And so Paul just goes ballistic. The guys go ballistic. When they heard this, they were cut to the quick, and they began gnashing their teeth. But Stephen is full of the Spirit, and he looks into heaven, and he saw the glory. Somebody say, amen, I would love to see the glory. Well, he's right there as he's about to breathe his last, as he's about to be stoned to death. He saw the glory. He saw heaven opened. They put their hands over their ears. They won't even listen to this guy and what he's saying. And they drive him out of the city. And they begin stoning him. And they lay the robes at the feet of Paul. 
And they went on stoning Stephen as he called upon the Lord, as he falls to his knees, almost unconscious. Lord, lay not this sin against their charge. What does that sound like, brothers and sisters? Calvary all over again. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That's not Stephen praying. That is Jesus Christ using his mouth. That is Galatians 2.20 manifesting right before Paul's religious eyes. And Stephen receiving one more stone dies. Now here's where I had to repent a few years ago. I used to preach, and it says in Acts 8, verse 1, if you look there, and Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. Here's what I used to preach. Saul went home that night under great conviction. Wow. And maybe he thought something like this. I could never respond with that kind of prayer if I was being stoned, if I'm really honest. My laws, my temple, my religious way of life, I don't have it. I can't forgive. I can kill. And then I felt like the Lord said, you're missing the whole deal. Saul went home in great anger and great fear and in fact took his persecution a whole nother level. And he began to ravage the church. That, that's almost like a rape, a ravage, a molesting. He went with a religious spirit of anger, fear, pride, and murder, and he began to ravage the church. He went out of his way, door to door, dragging believers out, arresting them. He was there voting for their death. Because what I believe happened is that rather than come under conviction, he's so alarmed because he realizes this Stephen, this young second generation believer is the tip of the iceberg. This is what quality of life is being produced by this church. This is a total threat to my way of life. This is a total threat to what I hold dear. They don't love Moses. They go back to Abraham. They're coming against the temple that I love and saying God isn't there. They're coming against the sacrifices saying that there was a greater sacrifice that supersedes all the sacrifices. And so Paul, Saul, he just absolutely goes berserk. He's in hearty agreement. And it says on that day, a great persecution arose in the church in Jerusalem. You know how big the church is at this time? About 13,000 believers. You know what's left after the persecution? Only the apostles. We need a church growth seminar quick. <laughs> they just lost their entire church. Now I want you to write this note down somewhere in your notes at the appropriate place here. Just write it down. Uh, church empties except for apostles. It, it's on the bottom of page six, Roman numeral nine C. Off to the right or left. I want you to. I want you to write this down. Jerusalem reaches out because of persecution. Antioch reaches out because of revelation. And we will really explain the importance of the difference between those two. Jerusalem is scattered 
Antioch sends. There's so many things downloading around. I've never, I never saw this before in teaching this for three years. There's a lot of churches that are scattered. People leave scattered because they're not in an Antioch framework. I'll, I'll have to ponder that some more. I don't want to overstep, but I'm just seeing it now. Anyway, Jerusalem is scattered. Antioch sends out by revelation. Now, there's this revival that takes place in Acts chapter 8 when they're scattered and Samaria has an outpouring of the Spirit under Philip's ministry. Peter and John go down there and they get filled with the Holy Spirit. So let's go to the end of Acts chapter 8. And then you see that the culmination of Philip's ministry there. And we pick it up in Acts 9 verse 1. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples. In other words, he's relentless. He's relentless. He's committed. He's threatened. He hates the name of Jesus. He hates Christians. And he will stamp them out. And he's going to say to the high priest, give me letters. And I'll go to Damascus and stamp them out there. And heaven looks down. Father looks at Jesus. And they both whisper to the Holy Spirit. Go get him. And we'll pick it up tomorrow. And tomorrow we will talk about apostolic conversion. What I would like for you to do tonight before you go to bed. Read Acts 9. And then I want you to read Acts 11, 22 through Acts 12. Acts 9, Acts 11, 22. Acts 11, 22 should be the birthing of the Antioch church. Trust me, Victory, you want to be an Antioch church. We'll explain that tomorrow. And then... That'll take us through Acts 12. I'm I'm not sure now if you want to do extra credit. By the way, after part one of the Life of Paul seminar, Saturday afternoon, we will have a 200 multiple choice quiz. (laughs) Question? No. Um, If you want to go into Acts 13 and 14, you're welcome. That's primarily Paul's first missionary trip. I'm sure we'll get there for sure by tomorrow afternoon, I would think. Uh... That's my goal, is to finish the first missionary trip tomorrow afternoon, right at the verge, and I will absolutely leave you hanging. <laughs> Till part two. Well, we, we might, I don't know if we'll get to Galatians. We'll see. Uh, but So you understand what I would like for you to read tonight, Acts 9, 11, 22, through to the end of chapter 12. That all covers Paul's conversion and Paul's hidden life. And, um, and we'll pick it up. Father, we just love you. We thank you, Lord. Father, I appreciate open hearts here, uh, hungry hearts. Lord, forgive me if I go too fast at times. Thank you that it's being recorded. We can chew on it later. Lord, just bless my brothers and sisters. And I just speak right now to each one of their hearts for fresh grace. Why don't you just begin to receive it right now? 
Just humble yourself before the Lord. Be free to acknowledge your weakness before Him. And just say, as I've been saying for many days recently, Lord, I need more grace. I need more of you. More grace. Father, give us good night rest tonight. We bless you, we love you, and we need you. We'll see you tomorrow morning, 9 o'clock. We will start.